On this episode of The Playbook, I have the incredible anchor of Fox, Charles Payne, the host of Making Money with Charles Payne. And we're going to talk about why early in our careers, our moms were so disappointed in us. And now, what is our new relationship with money? Join me for all this and more on The Playbook. This is Entrepreneurs The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. I have a special media entrepreneur, Charles Payne, host of Making Money with Charles Payne on Fox. Welcome to The Playbook, Charles. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to start off with one of my favorite topics about playbook, and that's making money, because money to me and my relationship to money has changed drastically over the years. I was blessed to make a lot of it out of law school, had none of it when I grew up. And I think that's a beautiful combination to grow up with nothing and then make a lot of money and then even to lose it again uh, over $100 million just to make it back. So my relationship with money is an interesting one. I was wondering how you and your relationship with money has evolved into, you know, being one of the most notable people who share how to make money with us. You know, the, there's some uh, I, I, irony to, to your story that you just mentioned, because uh, I grew up for the most part without any money. I had two childhoods. One was a good one uh, in terms of financial. We weren't rich, but I grew up on army bases. Everything's paid for. You have a house, you have a car. Uh, you know, I mean, you just never think about money. Then I grew up, uh, my parents divorced and separated, and we were completely flat broke. And that was the first time I even knew about money, uh, knew how important it was, knew that you could actually uh, go through winter without heat or hot water, like all the things I assumed and just took for granted. So I had a, a sort of interesting childhood that kind of taught me the importance of money uh, at a very early age. And, and that's when I decided I was going to work on Wall Street at an early age as well, because I knew I needed, I was the oldest. I knew I had to help. I knew I had to support. So I was blessed to be able to go through that. And uh, like you, um, I made a whole lot of money. Uh, you know, at one point, my top, my net worth was $275 million. Uh, Then it went down a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, if that market crash would have been one year later. <laughs> right. <laughs> Me too. I'm with you, my friend. <laughs> You know what's so funny about it, though, uh, Dave? I, I tell people all the time, back then, uh, you know, we're talking like 2000, uh, you know, I was I was getting way too wild. Uh, you know, I was getting way too, I wasn't the, the person my mom raised. And a lot of it was the all the money I was making. And yeah. and I think, you know, if I would have been able to cash in all $275 million, um, and the person I was then was not good. So, you know, I probably needed a comeuppance. I needed to, that sort of humiliation to remember where I came from and the obligations I've been taught and feel I have. Um, so, you know, I'm doing extremely well right now. And my relationship is I, I try to share. I try to, you know, help people. Uh, I, you know, of course, I help family members, but I also get great joy out of helping strangers. You know, probably the, probably the best thing that I do is me and my wife every year, uh, in holiday time, you know, we go to all these stores like the Kmart's of the world and the Walmart's of the world. And we always go to the layaway department. And I ask for the list of all the people who have, have, have uh, toys on layaway. And Dave, I can't tell you, you know, the first time I did it was about nine years ago. 
my wife had a heart transplant operation and she had to go to California to get it. It was the first time they ever allowed anyone to go from New York to California, not on the list in California, to go there and get a heart. And so because she went to Cedars, she had to live there. So I had to get an apartment in West Hollywood. And we were there for a few months, right? I was going back and forth. And I'd been thinking about doing this for years. And that was the first time I actually did it. So we took a big wad of money, I think like 25 grand in cash. We went to the Kmart near, uh, not too far from the apartment. And after maybe the second person, I couldn't take it. I cried so much. These people <laughs> are so grateful for 300 bucks. It's, you just, I don't think a lot of folks understand that, that just, it's just amazing. So we do it, you know, we didn't do it last year because of COVID, but when we do it, I give her all the money and I walk away. You know, <laughs> I go play with the toys. <laughs> I can't, you know, because I hate seeing people that poor. When I was a kid, one time we, um, and you know, it was so weird. I don't know why, even though we lived in this sort of squalid conditions, no heat sometimes, sometimes no electricity, we would have to take an electric cord and plug it into a socket outside of our apartment to get electricity that I never felt poor. And I always kind of felt bad for my neighbors. And one night we were eating dinner and I couldn't eat and I just didn't feel good. I didn't feel well. And my mom said, what's wrong? So I it was my turn to do laundry that day. So, you know, it's, we had three boys. So when is your laundry day? It's your laundry day. It's the whole damn day. <laughs> and so I'm in a laundry mat and um, the day it's almost, I'm the last person there. Sorry about that. I'm yeah. the last person there, you know, waiting for all the dryers to finish. And the guy who was in there, he was, he was like a Central American immigrant. Um, he was cleaning up the place and he found a doll that had been ripped up. The arm was out the socket. He was sitting there and he was fixing it. And he says, and I said, oh man, I looked at him. So what are you doing? He's like, he said, I can't wait to give this to my daughter and the smile on his face. So, you know, just what people take for granted, the smallest things economically could be the whole world to them. So that's my relationship. Now I'm trying my best to get people to get, to learn that they can do it, that they're there are obstacles. I'm not going to, I'm not one of these guys. Oh, you know, capitalism's amazing and there's no obstacles. Just, you know, do A, B and you'll get C because this, that's not always the formula per se, but you can make it in this country. And I want everybody to go for it. Well, first of all, you know, thank you for your service, both in the military, outside of the military for what you do. And our lives do parallel because the one thing that almost made me cry is when you said I wasn't the person my mom raised me to be. I can barely say that without choking up uh, because that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, even moreover, my mom, when we had nothing, right? You're talking about six kids, five boys and a girl, packing my dinner in a paper bag, just working two jobs as a second grade teacher, filling up turnstiles at the 7-Elevens with greeting cards just so we could eat. So I, I know that, but she would, when we got a toy, she would make us give a toy away to, yeah. to, a, to a needy kid. So I, I didn't know I was needy. I just knew people had things that I wanted. So I was going to be rich enough, for example, to buy my mom a house and a car uh, because other people had houses and they had cars that didn't break down. And, and I wanted to buy both for my mom for everything that she did. Uh, and I carried that forward uh, as well. My, and I had the same experience. You know, I sat there one time and said, I want anyone to see me, but can I watch? That was the dumbest thing I've ever done. But <laughs> they give all the Christmas, they give all those toys away to these kids who actually appreciate them, which is where I came up with, you know, don't take for granted what other people are dreaming or wishing for. And it's a, a motto in my home 
because I want my children, you know, I can't teach them how to be poor. You know, and so I want my children to know we're not going to take for granted the fact that we're breathing, the fact that we live in this country with it's not perfect. But I promise you, I've traveled the world like you, Charles, and you know it. There is no other country in the world that you can come in here and not speak the language, not have a dime, maybe have a pair of shoes and end up being the richest man on earth. And this is the country that still provides that opportunity. You got to go do a lot, but it's going to happen, which leads me to my next question. One of the things that uh, I learned through my journey was knowing beforehand my timing and risk tolerance. And I've listened to a lot of your shows. You're a killer anchor. I learned so much by listening to you. Um, But you talk about the difference between investing and prospecting. You talk about understanding your own situation, your own timing, your own risk tolerance, which I think is a big crucial step in the financial success you've had where other people lose so much in the market, you're able to keep on winning by knowing your timing and risk tolerance and utilizing the market, the market makers and the margins to do that. Right. Well, you know, David, uh, it, to that point, it, it's hard for people to know until they get in there, right? Uh, you know, it's like oh, the old Mike Tyson saying, everyone's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth, right? <laughs> uh, and, and then there are people, you know, staying with the boxing analogy. I'm a huge boxing fan. And uh, there's a guy who just lost his title over the past weekend. And uh, the thing is, this guy was like the biggest dude in the world, but he's afraid to get hit. And so consequently, he lost because he never threw a punch because he didn't want to counter punch. And the, the point, the reason I think it's relevant is we got it. We have to take a certain amount of risk and we have to get out of our comfort zone. And I think the thing is, listen, make, let's try to be as realistic as possible with any of this stuff. Now, when it comes to the stock market, everyone tells me that they're an investor until the stock goes down. So, <laughs> and then they, so they bought ABC at 20 and then all of a sudden it's $15. And a lot of times they'll sell, take a loss, uh, lick their wounds and say, I'm never doing that again. And, and I've seen this happen a gazillion times over and over throughout my lifetime. And, and that's what breaks my heart is that there's just so many of these ideas that, you know, you, you, your risk tolerance is your risk tolerance, but it doesn't mean the world's going to agree with it. So it's good to know it, but you also have to be realistic. And, and, and so for me, with, with the time frames, I'm not, you know, a five-year plan guy or a 10-year plan, year plan guy. I am a guy who I do have goals, though, and I do try to make incremental steps toward those goals. Uh, so occasionally, you're going to have a pullback, and that's the time to make the decision. Because it's nothing's going to be a straight line. So, you know, all those pullbacks is when people have to decide. This $20 stock that I told everybody I fell in love with the company, so I'm buying a stock, do I sell it simply because it went to 15? Is the company different? Are the opportunities in the future different? Is it down because maybe the market's down? Is it down because some firm on Wall Street downgraded it? Uh, does it really reflect the value there? And the same thing with your personal goals in my mind. You take three steps up, this one step back. Does that mean your goal is not achievable, is not worthwhile, is not worthy of you? And, and for the most part, the answer is almost yes, stick with it. So, uh, you know, now if you're just going on a flyer, like you didn't do any research, you didn't do any due diligence, then, yeah, you probably should have a place where uh, you don't let it get out of hand. You know, so when people say, where should I sell my stock? I always tell them it depends on why you bought it. If you bought it believing in a particular story, you did a fair amount of due diligence, and you think over the next four years, everyone's going to have this in their house, then you got to hold it. But if you bought it because you heard a tip in the elevator, then you know what? Maybe a 5% stop is a good thing. Awesome. And then 
you know, everyone sees you as a stock expert, you know, as a market maker yourself and a market expert. But I know you are diversified as much as anyone else. Uh, what types of percentages of diversification for you uh, create a stable foundation economically? Right now, I have 5% of my assets in gold, hard gold, mostly bars. Uh, they don't do much, uh, you know, got them in a safety deposit box and I visit them once a year. <laughs> Not very conversational, <laughs> but they do shine. Uh, I haven't bought crypto yet, but I will. Uh, I'll probably buy, uh, you know, I'll probably buy one of the top ones, uh, a Bitcoin or Ether, and then something really, really crazy, you know, like the moonshot kind of thing. The, you know, the one that's a penny, uh, yeah. you know, that, yeah. And I, I probably would make that 3% of my uh, investing. Collectibles are about 5%, mostly watches. Uh, I'm a watch fanatic, but I also have things like uh, action figure dolls. I've got two biggie small dolls that are about 25 years old that I know are going to be worth a fortune. <laughs> I, I might be another, in the market for one. <laughs> oh, my, forget it. These things, I, I should get up and show them to you. Uh, cool. They're right over there. So those things are phenomenal. And art, I, I'm an artist, but I don't draw. And I don't have, I just don't have the time. And I wish I did. Maybe that's something I'll do when I get older. I'll go back to it. I went to high school for art and design in New York city. So I just got a great piece uh, from this uh, artist named Alec Monopoly. This thing is so funny. So groovy. I'm telling you. Uh, so, but, and after that it's all stocks. So, you know, it's. What about and, your home? What about your home? Any real estate? Yeah. Yeah. My, my home, I got an amazing house um, that, that, um, that, that, you know, it's so funny you mentioned that because I didn't even list that as, a, as an investment per se. But obviously, it's a, it's a cornerstone investment for most people. It's a it's a it's an amazing house, and it's it's you know it's it's an expensive house, so that's definitely up there. Um, and 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 that that rounds it up. Nice. And then you know those are the hard uh, constructs. By the way, I need to make an introduction. I uh, own a Harlem Standard. Uh, I'm an investor in, in Harlem Standard, a great whiskey company. Uh, which is right up your alley because I think you were born in Harlem. I was. We we got to we got to get you involved as an endorsement. Oh my goodness! Or, yeah. Yeah, we'll give you a call. But that leads me to you know the next side of it. We got to the hard construct, but faith in investing and faith in yourself. How does faith intertwine in the investment side of your life? Not the personal side, but the actual investment side. Does faith have any any play? Faith with respect to me as an investor is, is still mostly leaning toward me. In other words, uh, I have faith that if I do the work and I stay committed, I'll, I'll, I'll achieve. I think the market becomes pretty easy, easier, certainly, when you do uh, do the work and, and you have faith in that work. It kind of gets back to our initial, the other you know, part of the conversation with how do you hold, particularly when the stock is down. Um, faith in the system itself. I Listen, I always tell people the stock market is the greatest money-making machine ever, ever. Outside of, you know, the, the short time frame that Pablo Escobar was able to make a lot of money <laughs> off of that right, crop. Right. You know, I, there's nothing that's been consistent long-term that creates fortune. You pick up a Forbes 400, what they all have in common is it always goes back to that the company, the stock value of their company, right, or, or their portfolio. So I do have faith that the stock market is going to continue to go higher. Uh, as as mankind, particularly Americans, get a chance to create the next mousetrap. You know, one thing I've been talking about on my show lately are these moonshots, you know, robots, artificial intelligence. They even, they're even talking about investing in immortality, right? 
the metaverse, which, by the way, I'm not going in that bad boy, but I'm going to invest in it because I know everybody else will be there. I've seen The Matrix, all three movies. I ain't getting in the Matrix. I'm not getting in the metaverse, but I'm going to definitely own stock in it. So I'm going to own the biggest house. I'm going to own a big house in the metaverse. <laughs> oh, you like the metaverse, huh? Yeah. I'm not going to live there, though. I'm just going to rent it out. <laughs> there you go. So, so you know, so I do have faith in the stock market, but I also, but my whole thing is always, you got to buy individual stocks. In other words, you know, it's sort of a farce, like even, even on any given day, the S&P today was up 3%. And, and guess what? If you look inside the S&P, you're like, golly, two thirds of the stocks were down. Why was it up? You know, well, five stocks represent 25% of the index, right? The Dow Jones Industrial Average is weighted towards share price. So, if the biggest price stocks in there go up the most, most of them can go down. So it's so disingenuous. So I'm not big on, you know, the S&P and the Dow. I am really, really, really big. And I found the table. Find these individual companies. Find these names, these amazing, miraculous names. And they don't always have to be changing the world. You know, in the last, in the last 13, 14 months, one of the most impressive stocks in the market has been um, – uh, the the, the flip flop the the ugly uh, plastic shoes. I just got a mental block. Oh, Crocs. Crocs. Yeah. Up up twelve hundred percent. Up twelve hundred percent. Everyone on Wall Street walked away from the company. They walked away from the stock. Up twelve hundred percent. So they don't always have to change the world, right? But so that's where my faith is. I do the work, and and myself, and I do believe, and I've seen it. It's happened over and over again that the the, the 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 market generates wealth unlike anything else that's ever been created. Well, that certainly is a military vision. You got to take care of the feet. No wonder it went up twelve hundred percent. So, <laughs> last question: um, I, I'd be admiss if I didn't ask. You know, just as a life advice, not not necessarily. I don't want any economic advice. What's the best piece of advice for life that you've received, or one of the best pieces of advice that you can think of? Uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned faith before. Overall, I think, you know, faith and, you know, a lot of people talk about that, obviously. I, I think, at least from my point of view, one of the most important aspects of life is to always be able to marvel um, and always ask questions. I think being inquisitive is so that. important. You know, yeah. asking questions and seeking answers, it just makes life amazing. Every day I try to learn something new. And that just makes so much difference in my life. I love that asking uh, and being curious, creative, collaborative, especially asking for help through that radical humility that you and I both together, we uh, have really hit, hit the jackpot on reinvesting in ourselves. And yes. Charles, you've been with Fox a, a while, but I didn't even realize that we have a 25th anniversary uh, of Fox. What's that mean to you? Uh, to be a part of something so established. It truly, you know, you're an anchor, but they are an anchor in our m live uh, with yeah. money, with finance, with, with everything. They're a cornerstone in American history. You know, David, I think the most, the, the most important thing for me is that Fox gave a voice to the voiceless. That before Fox, the news was all about what the, uh, the elites on the East Coast were thinking, the elites on the West Coast were thinking, and, you know, you never knew about what the folks in Idaho were thinking. You never knew what was happening in North Dakota. You never understood the, the pain and suffering, perhaps, of someone in the Rust Belt. Uh, and it gave them a voice. It gave them a platform. You know, everyone these days talks about having a platform. 
or, or using a platform or Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame, all that stuff. People want to be heard and they've got ways of being heard, but nothing like this. This is a megaphone for the people that are voiceless. And that's what I've always appreciated. And I, and I think it's the, probably for me, at least the biggest contribution of Fox is how it's made more Americans count than that counted before with respect to the media, particularly the news media. Yeah, I remember I was like, how the heck, there could be four, there'd be four channels. Oh my God, I'm, I'm older like you, right? Remember you're like four channels, how's this gonna work? David, when, I, when Neil Cavuto left CNBC to go to Fox, I thought he was nuts. <laughs> I did too, I did too. But I thought he was once nuts. Once again, radical humility. I'm ignorant and humble, not arrogant and arrogant anymore. So I, I don't think anybody's nuts. I would have thought Bezos was nuts if he told me to be the richest man from selling books out of a garage. Yeah, what do right. I know, right? So. Uh, but you also have something, you know, talking about being a voice of the people. You're doing a, a town hall on November 9th. You know, what's going to be the subject matter in participation in that town hall? I am so excited about this because it's about the individual investor revolution. Last year, more individuals came into the stock market than any year in history. And they are shaking things up. Now, I think a lot of it's going to be trial and error. Some of it has been already. Uh, the establishment hates them. Uh, they're trying to trip them up. And my whole thing is, I just, I, you know, I want people to do well. I want people to change their lives. I want people to have changed the arc of their lives and their children's lives. So I, I have been so pumped. I started seeing it mid-year last year. It, like, you know, uh, I, I do a research business. I do a teaching business. And, and the business went through the roof. And then people were like, listen, this market crash, I've been watching this thing for a long time. Every time it crashes, it comes back. So people have been jumping in there, but they want to do it a different way. And they've been criticized and ridiculed because they don't want to go by the old, you know, paint by numbers that Wall Street has already established. So we're going to discuss that in the future because this individual investor revolution is amazing. And I want everyone to be a part of it. I'm certainly going to be a part of it. And you're certainly one of what I call the Meltzer Thousand because we're empowering people to make a lot of money, help a lot of people. And of course, you and I know this, have a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I can't, I can't wait to join everybody November 9th for the town hall with Charles Payne. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.